seeking for the help of the Lord. I direct your prayer for attention to the second book of Samuel, about reading the 23rd chapter and verse 5. 2 Samuel chapter 23 and verse 5. Although my house be not so with God, yet he hath made with me an everlasting covenant, ordered in all things and sure. For this is all my salvation and all my desire, although he make it not to grow. To Samuel 23 and verse 5. We are told in the opening verse of this chapter that these are the last words of David. And David here is looking to really what is the whole foundation and comfort of his soul as he comes down to the end of his life. And it is in the covenant. It is not in his works. It is not in himself. Is in what God has done and the covenant that has been made with Him, but really made with Christ on His behalf. The people of God are chosen in Him and their names are in that covenant. And that was David's comfort. Last words. What a weight people often put on the last words of loved ones, those that they have known, those that they have loved here below. And truly when a life has been a consistent life, a godly life, we're told with David, although his sin with Bathsheba and of murder was the one stain upon him, yet he was a man after God's own heart. And so the last words, when that is the case, they have quite a savour and quite a weight. We know, of course, of those like Suki Hali, those who here may have read her account, beautiful, sweet account of the grace of God. And she said, before she came to an end, that many would be wanting to hear what Suki would have to say on a deathbed. And she said, they won't hear anything. God will stop my mouth. I won't say anything. My life is my witness. My life is my testimony. And that's what it was. I believe it was the last week of her life. She never uttered anything at all. And the most important thing as we live is that our lives bear testimony and that we remember that there was but one that was blessed as he was in the actual article of death, the dying thief, one that none might despair and one that none might presume. Nevertheless, where there have been those that have sought the Lord all their life and they have been very evident seeking souls, crying out for the Lord. And I know my own dear mother was one of those. And the Lord blessed her at the end of her life when she was unconscious and blind. And that meant a lot as to what was heard then. Uh, What a contrast between the times that she was crying out and seeking and very clearly giving testimony she had not got that which she wanted. And when that then she was able to testify that she had got what she wanted, that is a very precious thing. When the Lord is spoken of as precious and lovely in a way that had never been spoken of by a person before. And so last words, they do carry a, a lot of weight. They are, they are precious uh, words. Remember the 
you know, Lady Deacon's wife in Australia, in Geelong. Uh, his, well, actually, the, 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 the deacon himself, it was his mother. When she passed away, fully conscious, she raised herself up in the bed and three times moved the covers while saying victory, 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 and then lay down and died. And it, it has never left me. What a sacred thing that would be to have, as it were, one foot each side of the grave and realise that we've obtained the victory. Because many times the people of God, they fear life more than death because they know their own wicked heart, they know Satan, they know how weak they are, they know the world, the pull of the world, and they fear those things that they will be left to do, walk in, or to be cast away. And to come to the end and realise that we've obtained the victory through the Lamb of God. And those are precious times. We realise it before by faith, where we're able to hang upon the Word of God or hang upon the precious promise that is here and the words of the everlasting covenant of God. But there have been those that have uttered things thinking that they were the last words and they have sought just to really deceive men. And I never forgot when I was eight years of age and my father brought me to see a person at Melbourne who felt that she was dying. And my father felt he wanted us boys to hear her testimony. And we went and this lady, she took me by the hand and pleaded, she said, never leave the house of God, never leave the dear chapel there at Melbourne. And it seemed that she was truly converted, but the Lord raised her up again. And she came back to the chapel, reading novels at the back of the chapel, defying my father, there was no change, no change, the most solemn thing. That the Lord should see for if she had died, she would have been buried in hope. But the Lord raised her up, and the ongoing life proved that what she had spoken was not true. And really, we need our lives to bear witness of what we say. It is vital that we do to give testimony with the heart man believes and with the mouth. Confession is made unto salvation, but our lives should bear witness to the reality of it. David's life did, and he comes to the end of it, and he testifies here where his hope was. Now text reads, Although my house be not so with God, yet he hath made with me an everlasting covenant, ordered in all things and sure, for this is all my salvation and all my desire, although he make it not to grow. Well, there's three things I desire to bring before you this evening. The first is the truth of an everlasting covenant. What is it? What is this covenant? That David is speaking of here. The second is four tokens in this verse that we are in this everlasting covenant. And then thirdly, in the covenant, in spite of two things, there's two things spoken of in this text that David is in the covenant in spite of them. They seem to go against him being in them. Well, the first thing is the everlasting covenant. Now, we read together the chapter 9 in this same second book of Samuel, and it was the account of Mephibosheth. 
David had made a covenant, a promise, an agreement with Jonathan. He'd also given the same promise to Saul. And that was that he would show favour to Jonathan's son, to Jonathan's seed. What was done here in this chapter, in chapter 23, or sorry, in chapter 9 that we read, it flowed forth from that. The opening verse reads, David saying, Is there yet any that is left of the house of Saul that I may show him kindness for Jonathan's sake? He's remembering the promise. He's remembering the covenant that had been made. And that is why he sought out Mephibosheth. And that is why Mephibosheth could be at the king's table Although he was lame in both his feet, although there was nothing in him, David didn't inquire about his life, there was nothing, his works or what he had done. The only thing was that he was bound up in that promise that David had made to Jonathan. And in the same way, God has made promise in his beloved Son as he has chosen a people, chosen in Christ before the foundation of the world. They were the fathers and he gave them to the Son. Thine they were and thou gavest them me. And that covenant is that covenant what David is speaking of ordered in all things and sure. He says that this covenant has been uh, made with him and the way that it is made with all of the election of grace is that their names were found in the Lamb's Book of Life, enrolled in that book, enrolled with the Lamb of God, chosen in him. There are those that may make provision for children or grandchildren before those grandchildren are even born. They might make a will and realise that by the time that will is enacted that they might have more grandchildren than what they have now. And so they write it in a certain way that is not actually specifically putting the names or the numbers, but making provision because of the relationship to them and to their children, that they shall have a provision. Now, we do not have the benefit that God does. God knows the names of all of his people. He has known them from eternity in the mind of God. He says, I have loved thee with an everlasting love, and therefore with loving kindness have I drawn thee. And it is in that way that God has established a people, a church, a, a people to be redeemed. How very clear he is when he speaks in John 10 of his people. And he says to the Scribes and the Pharisees, ye are not of my sheep, therefore ye hear not my word. He doesn't say that, well, it's, it's by hearing of the word that they're made his sheep or made not his sheep, but his sheep, they're already his sheep. Already they are given him by the Father and it is by their hearing that they are made known that they are his sheep. Paul says, the election hath obtained it, the rest were blinded. In the New Testament church, when the word of God was preached, we read that as many 
as were ordained unto eternal life, believed. And again, that ordaining to eternal life is the covenant, is what the Father had promised the people to the Son, and the conditions of that was that he laid down his life for them. He had to become of their seed, a seed of the woman, and to be brought under the law, that he might redeem them that are under the law. There is a covenant, a covenant of works, a covenant that we were born in under Adam. And upon sinning, that covenant is broken, the sentence of death is enacted, and as all have sinned, so condemnation came upon all men. But this covenant is before that. It's in the same way as what Paul writes to the Hebrews when he's speaking about the high priest after the order of Melchizedek. And he says that Abraham gave tithes to Melchizedek. Melchizedek, the priest that met him when he came from the slaughter of the kings, there's nothing said about his line, his parents, when he was born, when he died. And Paul draws from that. He, he had neither beginning nor end. Uh, the power of an endless life, a type of the Lord Jesus Christ. But he points out in this that even Levi, which administered the covenant under the law, he paid tithes in Abraham. And therefore, that Melchizedek was greater than Abraham and greater than the law and Levi. And it was before that and the beautiful point as well that is made, if there is a change of priesthood, then there's also a change of law. And this is why we affirm as gospel standards that a believer is not under the law, they are under grace. They're not under the Levitical law, they're under the new priesthood of our Lord and Saviour Jesus Christ. It doesn't make us lawless. By the law is the knowledge of sin that releases from condemnation and makes known what was there before the law. The provision right when man fell, the seed of the woman, and a provision that the scriptures speak of that's even before the foundation of the world eternally. And so this is what is set forth as an everlasting covenant. God's dear people from eternity, they come into time as sinners, in God's time, in God's place, God's way, and he calls them by grace. He brings them to a felt need of sinnership, a need of a saviour, and then brings them to know and to value the Lord Jesus Christ and to put their whole trust in him. But why he works is because of that covenant. And why he saves is because of that covenant. The same as it was with Mephibosheth. No cause in him, no reason of blessing in him, but only in that covenant. If you and I are saved, it will be because we are in that covenant. It will be that the Lord has known us before we knew him. That he has appointed us unto salvation. We read that the kingdom of God standeth sure, having this seal, the Lord knoweth them 
that are his. I think it was at Corinth when Paul was there that the Lord told him and said, I have much people in this city. How do you know, Lord? I know my sheep and am known of mine. He knows where they are. Paul, he tries to go to Bithynia, into Asia. The Spirit suffered them not, no, not there. Then a vision, come over into Macedonia and help us. Why? Because the Lord knows he has his people. He has Lydia. He has the jailer in the jail. And so he orders the things that are happening to bring Paul into that jail. Another one that the Lord had was Onesimus, Philemon, servant, runaway slave. Couldn't bear to be a slave. Kicked, rebelled against it, ran away. Where did he go? Went to Rome. And there is Paul. And he's not only a slave, he's a prisoner. And the Lord uses it. And he's converted. And brought back no more a no longer a servant, but more than a servant, a brother beloved. And the Lord's ordaining the very place and spot and way that his people should be saved and called and found out. An everlasting covenant, tracing back beyond time, tracing back to God himself, chosen in Christ before the foundation of the world. David says here, Although my house be not so with God, yet he hath made with me an everlasting covenant, ordered in all things and sure, for this is all my salvation and all my desire, although he make it not to grow. He may say this before we pass on from this first point. If there was not a covenant, no one would be saved. No one would be saved. And we never think that the election, as it were, shuts out. It is, in that sense, ordaining to life and ordaining to death. But if there was no covenant, none would be saved. If it was just on man's choice, man will never choose the Lord. He will never seek the Lord first. He will never choose the Lord. He is dead, dead in trespasses and sins. The Lord says, I pass by thee when thou wast in thy sin." and bid thee live. It is the Lord first, first in the covenant, and first in quickening as well. I want to look then, secondly, at four tokens that we are in the everlasting covenant. And they are in this text. The first is this, that we have personal things. Personal things. In this verse we read the word my and me again and again. Although my house be not so with God, yet he hath made with me an everlasting covenant ordered in all things and sure, for this is all my salvation and all my desire. All the time, it is personal. True religion is a personal thing. Being in the covenant is a personal thing. It's not a general thing. And it's so vital to insist on that. There's so much teaching today. And some have even said it to me who have been in the Church of England that, well, what's the problem? Christ has come. He's died. Sin is put away. We're all going to heaven. Christ has shown us how we live. We just live our lives to the full. There's no problem. 
And that's what she said. I no doubt believed. No need of a personal faith. Not under the law, not under condemnation, not lost, not ruined. Such a wrong view of Christ's offering on Calvary. I lay down my life for the sheep. Ye are not on my sheep. How very clear. There is a particular redemption. And it is a gospel that is to be proclaimed throughout the world. Why? To bring about a reconciliation between fallen man and God. To bring men to repentance. To bring men to a felt need of the Saviour and to view the Saviour as the only way that they are to escape the wrath to come. It is when the things of God become personal that we have a first token. Instead of sitting in the chapel and you're hearing for everyone else and thinking for other people, suddenly it is us. Suddenly it is personal, as if everyone else is brushed aside, it's just you. And God is speaking to you and your soul. And I've used the illustration before. It was a very vivid thing for me. When I was in my apprenticeship, probably 16 years of old, 16, 17, and I was in the workshop, maintenance workshop, and they chose me to be the representative for the uh, safety committee, health and safety committee. And we used to meet regularly with the matron and the chief heads of the department, actually, including my chief engineer, but I was representing the workmen. Well, we wanted two things. We wanted safety boots. We didn't have safety boots, yet we were working in engineering. We wanted a first aid cabinet. We were always told, if you cut your finger, go to A&E. We said, have to wait four hours at A&E. We want a first aid, that's what first aid cabinet's called. So I pressed for this at this committee, and I got it. The engineer didn't want it, and I got it. And I was so smug. I was so pleased. I'd got to own my engineer. But I forgot he was my engineer. He was over me. And I had to face him when I came back to the workshop without the matron, without the other heads of the department. And sure enough, he came in that door and a long workshop and I saw him come through and he made a beeline to me. And I had my two fitters, two qualified fitters there. And I almost instinctively hid behind them. He said, no, it's you I want. And the sense of being so isolated, I've got no one to hide behind. Not my fitters, not those who had stood with me and voted for what I've got. And I had to face him directly. And that is where we need it, to be so personally. We must stand before God. We must give an account. You can't shelter between behind a parent, a, a, a preacher, a pastor, any. It is between our soul and God. And when we come to die, we might have all our family around us, but they can't die for us. They can't stand in our place. We're on our own. And so David here is speaking very personally, personally about his house personally about the covenant, an everlasting covenant. He's speaking personally about his salvation, all my salvation, not someone else's. He's speaking personally about his desires, all my desire. How mindful are we of these things? What are our desires? Towards God, to things of God, what are our desires? You read in Psalm 37, Delight thyself in the Lord, and he shall give thee the desires of thine heart. As only as we delight in the Lord will have right desires. And here, what is David's desire? What has that been? All his desire 
for his God, for salvation, for that covenant. And it is a personal thing. How personal is our religion? Come down to the closet. Our personal prayers, you might say we have family prayers. But do you have a life between your soul and God? Do I? How healthy is that? So this is the first token that is very evident here. If we are in that covenant, then the things of God and salvation, the covenant itself, will be a very personal thing and will become to be, begin to be, a personal thing and I believe it will carry right through our lives like David to the end and still be then. The second thing, there are ordered things in it. He says here that it is ordered in all things. God is a God of order. He does things in a specific order. You see that in Abraham's life. You see that in the promises he gave him when those brought about. What he tells Abraham of his seed shall be a stranger in a strange land. They shall be brought out in the fourth generation. And it comes to pass. 215 years later they go into Egypt. 215 years later they come out. All is told to Abraham, the Lord having a plan and a purpose. Think of Joseph, how he came into Egypt. All the things that happened didn't seem very ordered, did it? Not going through it might be things in your life now. So that's not very ordered. There's confusion. Can't see. Can't see the reason, the purpose in it. And nor could Jacob. He said, all these things are against me. And we read concerning Joseph in Psalm 105. Until his time came, the word of the Lord tried him. But there came a time he said to his brothers, Ye sent me not hither, but God, to save your lives by a great deliverance. He could see then, those things were ordered towards an end. You know, if someone builds a house, someone builds a development, those of you who in daylight would come into Cranbrook along the Hartley Road, and they're building a great big new estate. And the things that they're doing, the weeks and weeks that they're spending, no sign of a house yet there. All of the diggers and why oh, they're putting all in the roads and putting in there all the sewers and the water and the electricity. All of that's going in. They don't build the house and say, oh, we're going to need electricity for these things. They put that in first. And there's a distinct order in the way that you do it. Different over here in a way that over in Australia, Australia, we build the foundation, you put the frame up, you put the roof on, and you put the tiles on, and then you start bricking it up from the bottom along the uh, veneer. Here you build it up right from the bottom. The last thing you do is put the roof on. Different in different countries. But it's still done in an order, a way that one thing has got to be done before another. And all of you would know things perhaps you've made or you know, repaired and you've done something first and then realised that, well, you should have done something before that. You've got to backtrack, undo it, take it apart so that you can put the other bit in, in its order. God is a God of order in all that he does. And you and I in our lives will... Notice that order or see what he does. It's recognisable so that those like Laban, Beth Hill, is able to say when Abraham's messenger has gone to find Rebekah, wife for Isaac, that 
they say the thing proceedeth from the Lord because they could see the order and the Lord's hand in it. Those things that the Lord does. You think of David even. What David looked back in his life. And there he is with the sheep. And the Lord delivers him out of the hand, the paw of the bear and the lion. And then we have Samuel coming and anointing him to be the next king. But then the Lord's ordering it that Saul, he, he needs someone to play music for him and a servant knows of David. So David is brought before the king. He gets to learn of all what's in the court, of the king's court. But David's also got to be brought before the people of the land. Long comes Goliath. David is sent by his father to see how his brethren do and Goliath comes out and the Lord gives him deliverance and suddenly he's presented before all the people of the land. See, this is the Lord working in secret anointing him, then bringing him into the court, then bringing him before the people and you see the Lord's hand in it. One of our dear friends up at Watersham, he said once, watch providence, for he that will watch providence will never lack a providence to watch. We often sing, my life's minutest circumstance is subject to his eye. We should believe that and know that. And when you're young people, when you're seeking either a wife or a husband or seeking for employment or a job, instead of what wife will I have, what husband will I have, what job will I take, to ask the Lord, what hast thou appointed for me? What hast thou ordained me to do? And who hast thou already preparing for me? And giving the Lord the honour and glory that he is a God of order. And already these things will be done. What often do I say to young people thinking to know what kind of job to do? Well, what, what has the Lord already given you an inclination for? He won't appoint someone to be an engineer who hates engineering. You can't put a bolt together. He won't appoint someone to be a musician who is tone deaf. And so you see how right from when he brings us into the world, he already has a plan, already has appointment. And with the choosing of his people, bringing them into the world, parents, native place and time, all appointed whereby him, it is all done in a way of order. And David sees this, and we should look for it, and see it, and mark it out. He which hath begun a good work in you will perform it unto the day of Jesus Christ. And if we can see the Lord beginning to work, and we notice these things, you think of Mary, the mother of our Lord. Things happened, she couldn't understand them, but she laid them up in her heart, she pondered them. And it may be for a while you can't see the order. It's like a jigsaw puzzle that's all little pieces everywhere. But after a while you see it come together and you see the Lord's hand and you see the order of it and what actually is being done. What I do thou knowest not now, but thou shalt know hereafter. So the second token is the order that God does in the lives of his covenant people. The third thing is sure things. Ordered in all things and sure. The man that had been born blind, the <coughs> Jews tried to take from him what the Lord had done for him. But he says, one thing I know, whereas I was blind, now I see. It was a sure thing. They couldn't take it from him. And there will be those things in our lives that are sure. 
What I mean is, someone could go to the Apostle Paul and say, Paul, well, they did really to say that to him, that thou art mad. Just to think that a light comes from heaven, shines from heaven, and, and you hear a voice uh, uh, speaking to you, those that are with you, they hear the sound, but not what is said, and yeah, it's just, just imagine. But Paul would say, all right, if that was just imagination, why, before that time, was I persecuting men and women who called upon the name of the Lord Jesus Christ? And after I was calling upon the Lord Jesus Christ and was joining myself to the disciples, if that was imagined, why? And those things in providence make it really sure. And there are those things, I mean, Paul's able to say later on, what I am, I am by the grace of God. I believe me, well, all the children of God would say, if the Lord had not have called me by grace, if he had not opened my eyes, then my life would be different than what it is now. My choices would have been different. The things that I decided would have been different. And they make the blessings of the Lord sure, as it were, they established in our lives, inseparably joined together, meshed in together, the blessing of the Lord and providence joining together, working together. We know, says Paul, that all things work together for good to them that love God, to them that are called according to his purpose. The Lord will not take away those things that he gives his people, those blessings, and he seals them as sure things, real things. Those, the whole really testimony of the gospel, you think of the witnesses of the gospels, the miracles that were wrought in the name of the Lord, the witness of so many as to the reality of the scriptures itself. And to this day and to the end of the world, in every one that is called by God's grace and converted, it is, puts this seal upon the reality of God's saving grace and of the covenant itself. How many sure things have we got in our life? Maybe it's like the man born blind. One thing I know. But he could join in here with David and say that they were ordered in all things and sure. The last thing here, the last token, is that they were desired things. And all my desire, they were desired things. You know, we read in Hebrews of those that testified that they were strangers and pilgrims in the earth. And they that say such things declare plainly they seek a country. That token of the desire. If we have prepared people for a prepared place, then we'll often think of that place. Paul said of the Thessalonians that they were called to wait for his son from heaven. Peter says of that inheritance that is incorruptible, undefiled and reserved in heaven for you. It'd be a strange thing. If we were in that covenant and in the promises of God and to have an inheritance above but never, never desired it, never longed for it, never desired the things of God. Really the very first workings bring about desires that were never there before, hungerings that were never there before. As newborn babes desire the sincere milk of the word that ye may grow thereby. How many Things have we got, we may say, that the Lord has put a desire in our heart for the things of God, for 
his salvation. Now, David says here, for this is all my salvation and all my desire. Those things he's spoken of, these tokens, these personal things, ordered things, sure things, desired things, this is all my salvation. Because it, it bears witness to the covenant and his name in it, that he is the Lord's. This is what he is trusting in, that God has dealt with him personally, that God has ordered his life and his calling, and he's made these things sure, and he's given him to desire these things. What do we look upon as our salvation, as the true witnesses and true tokens of it, true evidences of it? The question to go home with and ask, because David here has things. And he says, I can look at these things and I can read in them my name as being his sheep. The many other things, of course. We think of our Lord in John 10 and the evidence of being a sheep by hearing the word of the Lord. Many other evidences. But here is what David, coming down to his end, says is what his were. Well, in the third place, in the everlasting covenant, in spite of two things. And it may be that there are those of you here this evening that have things that you bring as objections as to why you're not really in the covenant. How could you be one of the Lord's people when these things are present? And David mentions two things. The first is this, that his house be not so with God. He says, although my house be not so with God. What did he mean? Really, I believe two things. One, personally. Every one of God's children, when they come right down to the end of their lives, they're still a sinner. They still say with Jacob to Pharaoh, few and evil have my days been. They'll never testify of a perfect life, sinless life. They'll say, no, my house, this house, my tabernacle, my body, it's not so with God. It's not what I would be. I'm not what I would be. And you may say this evening that that is what has been plaguing you, troubling you. You see, you feel the sins, the things that seem to just go completely against you being in the covenant. David could see so. He could remember so. The things that he'd done, things in his life, and then not only that, there is his outward house, his children, his family. You think of the trouble that he had with Absalom, with Amnon. You think of how it was with Samuel. Samuel had been with Eli. Did Eli's sons serve the Lord? No. They were men of Bedrill. Yet Eli was one of the Lord's dear children. But what a house he had. And Samuel, it was said when they asked a king of Samuel, thy sons follow not the Lord. What, Samuel? Could not you bring your sons? And David could say, he looks at his house, and devil would say, if you were in the covenant, if you were one of God's children, your house would not be like this. Your children would not be like this. Your grandchildren what a mess perhaps is in all your life. But David says, in spite of this, this covenant held sure. And then there's a second thing. Although he make it not to grow, really the text is enclosed in these two things that seem to go right against this covenant. 
although he make it not to grow. The word is clear that we are to grow in grace and in the knowledge of our Lord and Saviour Jesus Christ. But often if it's a growing in grace, it's a growing in realising our works, really grace and works, they're two opposite things. If we grow in grace, we grow viewing more and more our works are so sinful, are so poor. Again, there's this, as it were, an insight into the mind of one of the Lord's dear people coming down to the end. He doesn't view, as it were, that he's grown to absolute perfection, but he's still, as it were, on mercy's ground. He's still looking for these tokens, these true evidences, and he's still resting on what the Lord has done. You and I might have it as a stumbling block that we feel how little progress we've made in our Christian faith. The years that maybe we've made profession and how little we know. And it may be a cause of sorrow to us, grief to us, and the devil again get in and say, well, surely you're not one of the Lord's children. Well, David says, although he make it not to grow. Really, here is a foundation for one on a deathbed or nearing the end. And here are these objections that try to take away that comfort, as if David would say, no, the covenant stands firm and sure. And these objections and these attacks, they don't undermine it. They don't take it away. In spite of these things, yet he hath made with me an everlasting covenant ordered in all things and sure. For this is all my salvation and all my desire, although he make it not to grow. May the Lord grant us this same testimony. Amen.